Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. I appreciate having the opportunity to uh, speak with such a distinguished group tonight. So thank you for having me on a rainy night, and thank you all for coming out. Uh, I had a, uh, an event that was earlier this year, and we had a little thing called an ice storm. Uh, there were 350 people scheduled to come, and there were 12 that showed up. <laughs> However, we got to a very nice little tight group and had a great kind of conversation during the process. So uh, I don't mind if I have three, 300, or 3,000. It's always a lot of fun. Tonight, my topic is about change. And that may sound a little uh, trite, but, but it's an important thing. I mean, we all heard about it in the last election. In fact, it spawned quite a few uh, bumper stickers, of uh, which I won't repeat because I wouldn't be politically correct. But uh, we've all heard the quotation, change is the only constant. And uh, we'll discuss that in a moment. But I really think that uh, we have to think about change in different ways. We think about how do we embrace change. And believe me, you're going to have to embrace change in the next decade. Uh, what we've seen so far is very pedestrian compared to what it, uh, what it uh, is going to be, and that's what I'm going to talk about today. Uh, you've got people like Muhammad, uh, Mahatma Gandhi saying, be the change you want to see in this world. My take on that is the, uh, the best future is the one that you make happen, not the one that you predict will happen. So we've got a lot of people that are talking about change, even the great philosopher Soupy Sales, who says, uh, change is inevitable except from a vending machine. <clears throat> so let me tell you what a futurist is and what a futurist does. No, I don't have crystal ball. Uh, actually, I do, but it's up on the mantle and not in my office. Uh, futurists track ch uh, trends. It's a scientific endeavor where we look at a tremendous amount of trends because to see the future, you have to understand the present and you also have to have the lessons of the past. The problem is that more and more the lessons of the past are not being repeated into the future. The future is not a straight line from the past. It's a curved line. It's a exponentially curved line because the amount of change that we're going to see in the next 10 years is probably equivalent to the last 20 to 30. And every time you look at the next year, think about that. You have a change compression that is happening. It's happening all the time, and it's going to be continually uh, accelerating. There are people that talk about this. They call it the singularity. They talk about getting change so fast that you can't even think about something is going to be new, and it's already there. Now you say, how could that possibly be the case? We're already starting to get there. We're starting to talk about our computers that are programming our computers. We're talking about robots that are building robots. We're talking about generational life cycles, not of 20 years of we humans, but of 20 minutes. And the ability for the life cycle of learning what's happening, test it out. We take 20 years to grow a child and see if we did well with it. They take 20 minutes to take a new generation of something and be able to come up with it in a new way. This is the singularity. Some people believe it's coming. Some people believe that we are the 
the sea anchor, human beings are the sea anchor that is going to slow down some of this change because it's only as fast as we can absorb the change that the change will actually happen. That's what they believe. But that's only saying that there's not a country out there that is embracing the change more than we are. And if they are, they will be the ones who are creating the next generation of change after that. And the economics follow the change. Now, if necessity is the mother of invention, then it's also the father of change. Because we are seeing so many necessities. In the book Hot, Flat, and Card, where I worked with Tom Friedman on that book, we're looking at dwindling resources. It used to be that you would find 20% ore, copper ore, in the ground. Find a big nugget of this stuff, 20% of it was ore, 80% of it's rock. Now if you go to the largest pit mining uh, concerns, you'll find that they are doing productive ore at two-tenths of 1% of ore to the over, overburden. And you go, wow, we're, getting, we're running out of resources. At the same time, if you look at the exponential curve on population, you're going to see that we have more people. And if you start looking at the controversial subject of global climate change, and you'll notice that I don't call it global warming. I, uh, I tried to keep Tom from doing that because it's not really global warming. It's a more intense weather pattern system that we get from more CO2 in the atmosphere. All these things are creating a change quotient that is extreme, and we're going to be going through that. Now, tonight I want to talk about, very briefly, about five areas that are where I think a lot of the technology is going to be driving a lot of the change. I mean, you already look at how technology is driving the social change. I was glad to hear that you had social networks talked about last time. Anybody know why there's 140 characters in a tweet? Anybody? Well, that's because there's 160 in a text message. And you go, well, why was that? And some point, a German who was working on this said, eh, 160 will do. And he said 160. So a tweet is 140 plus 20 characters that are reserved for identification and routing information, so that's why you have 140 characters. The, the standards that we live with today are a legacy of the past, and they are also the thing that sometimes constrains us from the past. But today I want to talk about bits, atoms, cells, gears, and watts. Those are the five technologies that I believe are going to be making the biggest change. Information technology, may, you may go, well, how's that going to be the big change? I hope to change your mind if that's what your thought process is tonight. Atoms, we're talking about nanotechnology. I'm going to save that one for last because, quite frankly, if you really want to see the next invention of electricity, or I should say discovery of electricity, if you want to see a fundamental change that is of that order of magnitude, nanotechnology holds the promise of that. Cells, of course, is biotechnology. Gears is robotics. And the watts is where we talk about sustainable technology. Sustainability is, a, is, is something that we still have to get into. So let me get into InfoTech. Nicholas Carr raised a whole lot of people's dander by talking about IT is dead. He did it in a Harvard Business Review uh, article. He followed it up with a book called The Big Switch, which you might uh, enjoy sometime. But basically he said IT is dead. It doesn't matter anymore. Information technology is gone. Now, what he was actually saying, if you read the article, most people stopped at the title, was, uh, and took umbrage at it, was uh, that IT in the back office is dead. IT in recording the past is passe. It's dead. 
We can do so much to record the past, but if the future is not a straight line from the past, all it does is archive our history. What we need to do is use information technology to optimize the present and to understand and anticipate the future. Charles was saying something about a real-time world, and I said, no, I want to get out of a real-time world and get into a future-time world. Anticipate, not react. I mean, when you start talking about real-time, zero, zero latency is a very big number, very expensive to accommodate. And so the idea is the only thing better than having real-time is for me to understand what you're going to want before you tell me you want it. And this is one of the basis for a lot of the changes that are coming on. Google's uh, uh, PR person was asked uh, on the news today, what's the future of search? And she said, well, I'm not exactly sure what the future of search is, but I know it's going to be a lot more personalized. And that's exactly what we're talking about. Anticipate what you want. Anticipate that it's different than what you want and be able to bring that in. Now, if I'm going to work in the, the plant and the pipeline, in the field and the forest, not in the general ledger and the payroll, I've got to think differently about what IT I use and what I do with IT. And it's interesting because some of the biggest things that are now hitting us are some of the smallest things. My work recently has been in making the future, not just anticipating it, by working with sensing technology. Sensors. Now, we've all experienced sensors. Sensors tell us what the weather's going to be. Sensors are on the world all around us. The sensor in your Wii allows you to play interactive games. The sensor in your uh, airbag stops you from hitting the dash if you hit a fast deacceleration. So what we're talking about now are things that are being built not at a macro scale, not even at a medium scale, but at a micro scale. We're talking about MEMS technology, which is not new. It's been around for quite some time. And we're talking about NEMS technology, nano-electromechanical systems. Now, NEMS is building, building machines on the scale of a millionth of a meter. You can't see them, got to have a microscope. If you want some more information on that, go to Sandia Lab's website and take a look at what they've been doing for years. NEMS is on the scale of a billionth of a meter. And we are now building micro-machines one at a time, not yet able to mass produce them, at a billionth of a meter. Now, I could tell you all about the 500 different kinds of sensors that we've looked at. I could tell you all what they could do, but I want to tell you about one sensor. In November this year, we announced a sensor that came out of HP Labs, and it's an accelerometer. Now, that doesn't sound real sexy, does it? An accelerometer. It can tell how fast things are getting off. But because it's an accelerometer, it also has things like tilt. It also has things like um, lift. It can do it in six different dimensions. That accelerometer is now 1,000 times more sensitive than any accelerometer that's ever been produced. 1,000 times more sensitive. It'll stand up to 2,000 Gs. That is to say, 2,000 gravities. You can take this thing and hit it with 2,000 gravities. It still functions because MEMS are solid state devices. It has the able uh, to filter out noise so that we're at something called 10 nanogs per root hertz. And if you, do what that, if you know what that is, I'd like to talk with you later because I haven't yet any idea what that is. It's a measure of noise. But think about this. You could take this little accelerometer and I can put it out there in the street and I can hear me tap my foot in here. We have a demonstration that we do in the labs where we show that we've got a guy there and he says, okay, now walk out there. Now keep going. 
keep going, keep going, and about about 800 feet out later, he takes a stick and goes, boom, and it let registers in the lab. That's how sensitive this sensor is. So what are you going to do with it? If it's that sensitive, it'll hear something, boom, 800 feet away, it can listen to your heart valves. It can understand real time the blood flow in your arteries. Do you have any uh, carotid artery uh, uh, plaque buildup? This thing can actually listen for that. It can listen to, uh, it, can, it can actually uh, watch how you walk so that if you are having a neurological problem like Parkinson's, well before you have any of the symptomology, this can say, you're not walking the same way that you used to. Very good for finding early stroke victims. SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, extremely easy to do that one. Think about the infrastructure of America. Infrastructure of America is crumbling. 76,000 bridges are in danger of falling apart. We can take one of these little sensors, put it on a bridge, and detect the resonant harmonics of that bridge. So we know how that bridge tunes like a tuning fork when you hit it. And because we know what that tuning fork does when it's working well, we could also tell you that there's a bolt loose on a strut because it's not in the same harmony that it was before. You can do that now with almost anything that is structural. Entertainment. Anybody here play with the Wii? Okay. Cool game? You like the, uh, the Wii Fit? Okay. All right. Think about a whole body Wii. Put on a little jacket. It's got all the sensors in it. And all of a sudden, you are in the, in the uh, simulation. You don't just have this thing in your hands. You're there. You move. You do everything you want to. And it does that because these things are pennies. That's the whole idea. Trillions of sensors at almost free cost. That's what the SENSE project is about. It's called the Central Nervous System for the Earth. It's our intention to be able to detect the heartbeat of the whole Earth. And in doing so, be able to do traffic control, being able to optimize your health, being able to optimize the structural health, all kinds of different things that are coming about with that. Okay, I could sit here and talk about that forever, but I want to talk about um, the next one, which is robotics. Uh, everybody know about the DARPA Grand Challenge? 2004, DARPA Grand Challenge. The defense agency decided they wanted to get some free research. So what they did was they put a million dollar prize out there for any team that could take and create an autonomously driven vehicle 150 miles. In 2004, they had uh, over 150 entries. They had 23 that started. They had one that got all of seven miles, put itself in a ditch, wheels wouldn't stop, and it actually burned up. Great excitement. The next year, 2005, they had 23 finishers, I mean, uh, entries, and uh, all but one actually went by that seven mile mark, but the rest of them, five of them finished. And they declared that the ability to drive a vehicle in open space is now no longer a challenge. Two years later, 2007, they did the urban challenge. And they basically said you had to go 60 miles on streets, following all of the traffic rules, merging into traffic, and being able to do so in a certain amount of time. 
They had six entries who made it in the amount of time, and the best one was going about 18 miles an hour. So all of a sudden, you're saying, I can now have autonomously powered vehicles, driven vehicles. Now, the military likes that because water supply convoys in the desert war are probably one of the easiest things to attack, and they have been. But think about this. Anybody listen to Wheels on 570 KLF in the mornings on Saturday? It's an interesting show because he, if you haven't ha seen it, the backside of American history is absolutely fantastic. He really researches his history. But he has actually done the calculations to say that if we were able to have autonomously pi uh, piloted vehicles, we would cut the amount of foreign oil imported in the United States by 50%. Because how many of you get out there and you get going, you have to slam on the brakes, people are either hot rodding, they're idiots, or they're going slower than you, they're dummies. Why is it that that's always the case? But it is that basically, if we can get out there, go the speed limit, have the proper distance, and then ease on and ease off, about 50% of the imported oil could be saved. That's a critical thing. That's using robotics in a new way. Robotics are now coming out in such a way that you're going to start seeing bipedal robots. Those are the ones that we always see. But I'm now designing a, dis a uh, sensor distribution system that's actually being considered by NASA for, uh, for the moon, and it's all robotics. And these things have to run by themselves. It's, it's, it's just critical kinds of things. Let me move on to EnviroTech. Environmental technology is the last entry that I put onto my five, and it's interesting because there's a lot of controversy. How many of you believe in the CO2 is creating global climate change? How many of you don't believe? How many of you don't know? That's the rest of you guys. Okay. Well, whether it is or not, we do know that there's a great rise in the CO2, and there is a lot of question as to whether it's actually staving off the next ice age, because we're 11,000 years into a 10,000-year cycle for that, or it is actually going to create all kinds of chaos, and uh, that's what Hot, Fight, and Crowded is about as well. But if you start looking at how do you, st how do you change it, because we're, we're addicted to, to hydrocarbon fuels, and if you look at all of the renewable energy, also known as interruptible energy, because when the wind doesn't blow, it doesn't come, then all of a sudden you're going to say, we've really got to do something about this. Now, w there's a lot of people that are looking at different technologies. Artificial photosynthesis is one of the more interesting ones. And there's also another one that's uh, now in California, and that is basically learning from the coral reefs to be able to, say, take in the CO2, and they're doing this from a power plant, and produce concrete. Create your own coral reef, which is a flat sheet of concrete. We're now talking about environmental technologies that are going outside of the just put more windmills up, just stop up the cracks. We're saying put this stuff in a system of thinking. I've worked with Mazdar, which is a city that they're building south of, uh, of uh, Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. This whole city of about 50,000 people is going to be one of the most censored, computerized, optimized, and green cities you've ever seen. Go out and look at Mazdar, M-A-S-D-A-R, and Google that. And what you're going to see is a city that is built along the Arabic principles, high buildings, narrow ways, and it is going to be actually positive uh, on its green. It will actually reduce greenhouse gases by the way that it works. Fantastic designs all the way through. We've been working on the systems that are going to be in their transportation systems. Uh, 
Tom loved this one, uh, Tom Friedman. It's uh, basically you've got these all electric vehicles, nothing but electric vehicles allowed in town. And you overcharge the batteries from the sun during the day, and then during the night, you discharge from those batteries into your grid, and that's how you power the homes in the evenings. It basically becomes a net zero in greenhouse gases. We've also worked on something that's called Winyard, which is a data processing facility that we built. And it basically uses no compression. You have to compress air, uh, compress use cold water in order to chill all these hot servers that we use. In our case, we actually use outside air, high volume, low pressure, and we've been able to create an efficiency that is 10 times better than the next best data center that's out there. Okay, I want to go then to my last one, which is nanotechnology. Again, nanotechnology is something that's on the scale of a billionth of a meter in size. And what you're talking about is something so small that you need a tunneling electronic microscope to actually read it. Now, you've probably already been exposed to nanotechnology. God knows it's been the hot word of the day. Everything has to have nano in it, including your, your iPod. But you've got to have something that is of that scale before it is truly nano. Now, some of you may be exposed to Dan River uh, slacks. They don't stain. You can go out and skid across the, uh, the grass. They don't stain. They have a nano seal in called Nanotex, which actually seals the pores such that stains can't grab onto anything. You don't like doing windows. There's nanoglass. It's a coating that you can actually put on glass. It makes the glass surface so smooth that dirt, grime, pollution can't actually grab onto it. We're used to now having nanotechnology in a lot of our things. You just don't know it. But that's homogenous nanotechnology. That is, we create billions and billions of like molecule things. But we're also talking about heterogeneous, unlike molecules. There's a nanocar that was created by Rice University. You could take 20,000 of these and line them side by side on a human hair. Now, the problem is you could only make one because it was a long time to make it. But this thing actually runs. They actually had to do some real scientific research just to prove that the wheels did turn on it. And it has a motor. It actually has a paddle wheel motor that is a set of molecules, dark on one side, light on the other side. You hit it with the light, the dark absorbs the light, the, cold, the light reflects it, and the thing actually runs across a gold sheet. Very, very efficient. But we're talking about building nano machines now. We've been talking about MEMS. We talk about NEMS, nano electromechanical systems. We actually have several in the labs that we're using for uh, the next generation of sensors, which would be chemical sensors. And the ability for us to actually safeguard all of our food supply from things like, uh, like uh, E. coli, or that we can actually uh, make sure that all of the food that we have is, is properly cooked and things like that. But what you're talking about here are nanites. You're talking about the ability to take, if you choose to, 10 billion of these little machines, ingest them into your body, and each one of them goes and looks over a cell. One nanite, one cell. Watches over your body, makes sure that you are not going into aging. Aging, by the way, is something that's caused by the telomere, which is the tail of the DNA, growing short enough that the cell doesn't replicate anymore. And there's a tool that's called telomerase, which actually restores the telomere, being able to take an old cell and make it young again. And in doing so, you have to have a delivery system. And that's where you start taking the nanites, 
and they deliver the telomerase into the telomere. Now, is that far-fetched? Absolutely. Now we're getting into maybe science fiction, but the basis for doing this is basic science. The application is where we're going to be having a question about whether we can do it and how soon. And by the way, how many of you want 10 billion nanites in your system? <laughs> okay, not sure. The challenge of technology is not going to be whether it's here. The challenge of technology is not going to be whether it creates change. The challenge of technology is what change we allow it to create. We can take the technology which is amoral and we can use it for immoral purposes or we can use it for moral purposes. The big challenge to scientists is not science. It is philosophy. It is society. It is doing the right things by the technology that we have. So I'll leave you with that thought. Five technologies. We have the infotech, biotech, nanotech, robotics, and envirotech. They're going to be here. What are you going to do about it? And by the way, some great investments out there. So thank you very much for your time tonight. Thank you very much. What we're going to do tonight is a little bit different since this is uh, more of a member social. Uh, Jeff will be delighted to take your questions. I think you may just walk around and uh, go on and enjoy Exxon's bar and all, all, all the food that's here, and we'll just have an informal conversation. The valet is a little backed up, I understand, so uh, the bar is open till what, about another hour, so enjoy being a member of the World Affairs Council. And, Thank you, Jim. Uh, Jeff, I know you're going to some, take some questions, but I want you to be as well-dressed oh, as I am. Oh, very nice. Uh, official World Affairs Council necktie. Looks there like it's go. about time I had one. That's right. <laughs> good. Questions? Any question? Yes, ma'am. What's a good stock? <laughs> one that makes money. <laughs> you know, the interesting thing is that a lot of the stock that we've seen, uh, if, if you take a look at some of the, you know, the top 50 stocks in 1930, and then you look at how many of those companies are still around 50 years later, the, 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 exit of major companies from the value stream is, is remarkable, and it continues on to this day. I talk about we're in the fourth wave of information technology, and there are not very many of those first wave IT companies, uh, Control Data Corporation, or they're not into it, Honeywell, others that are around. So my take on it is that you have blue chippers, and the blue chippers, if you want to invest in a good company, find out who they're buying who they're buying, because usually a company, I think a corporation, is an institution that is built to maintain the status quo and to optimize it, but not necessarily to create the next generation of capabilities. I found that out as I tried to create new capabilities within uh, my current company, HP. I've been able to do it, but there's a lot of antibodies in there that also say, no, you can't ever do this. So my take on it is there's a lot of small up-and-coming companies. You've got to really look at what technologies are going to be the best and then spread your risk over several companies in those technology areas. But as for particular ones, uh, actually I could tell you, but I'm under non-disclosure. <laughs> it's a good excuse, right? Bring it back to the U.S. just for a second. Uh, Congress is looking at changes in the IP laws. Supreme Court has been very active, Fed Circuit is active. How's that going to play out as far as the U.S., the intellectual property that, uh, rights that we have? Do you feel good about what's happening? 
Well, I'm concerned. I'm concerned on a couple of fronts that the, the way that we have been doing things in the past is that we've used IP almost to stop progress at times as opposed to, uh, to create progress. Um, and then we start looking at some of the IP incursions that have happened with the Chinese and uh, how are we going to be working in a global economy when we have uh, people who don't play well with us. Uh, the company that uh, we're going to be announcing on uh, February 10th, this new relationship, uh, we have a very big concern about a third party we'll be bringing in who is Chinese because the technology that we're using is extremely good. I'm concerned about a couple of things about the United States. First of all is the generation of IP. Uh, we have been falling behind. If the world is flat, is still a very good contemporary book on that. We still have an education gap, an aptitude gap, and, and all of that. The education gap is what really concerns me. The amount of IP that we create today is not sustainable on the world stage. So I'm not sure how relevant the question of IP is when we are going to start seeing a tremendous amount of IP coming from the east to the west, not from the west to the east. I've had a lot of people that, that have disagreed with me from, on that. But if you look at the number of engineers that are, uh, that are graduated, I'm not so worried about India's engineers, but I am worried about China's engineers because they're being engineered with entrepreneurial spirit as well. Uh, and they're also good at stealing IP. So I, I would say it's a very complex situation that has got to play out for a while. I'm not necessarily happy with the way that the recent uh, changes have been going. But on the other hand, um, this is one of those things where the more you get into it, the more you know what you don't know. And there's so many uh, twists and turns on IP that it's going to be it's going to be interesting times ahead. Uh, there's people that are going. If you've got a, a medication and you are selling it for eighty dollars a pill, and it costs you eighty cents, then you're immoral about not producing that for the rest of the world. So they feel it's moral for them to take that and use it and uh, to get around your immoralities. Uh, so we got a lot of, there's a lot of questions that are coming into it, not just pure law. We have a question over there, Chip? Chip. Yes. Jeff, I wanted to invite you to elaborate on that theme of particularly, you know, you, you focused on the technologies and the future development. Could you, you know, put it in the geopolitical context a little bit more as you were just doing? What can we expect as the United States facing the BRIC countries rise? They're not only copying and stealing, and we're stealing from them too, I mean, let's admit it. But, I mean, it's, it, in espionage, it goes both ways. But, you know, we are going to see more innovation, more genuine innovation coming from China and India and so forth. How will that play out in terms of our country's future, and what can we do about it? Well, what we can do is, uh, and let me take it back a step. I mentioned this earlier to someone tonight. Uh, what most people don't realize about this recession that we're coming through right now uh, that has never happened in a recession before is that there was a 5% productivity improvement across the board in uh, businesses during the recession. Now, in previous recessions, that has not happened. In previous recessions, there has been lack of productivity, and therefore, when the economic times changed, people went back to work and uh, because they needed to have those people back to work. And now 5% of the people aren't necessarily needed to come back to work because of the productivity gains that are out there. That's going to be one reason why we're having a, a prolonged recession. The solution for that is education. And U.S. is now 43rd in education uh, in, in, in various ways of, of, uh, of measuring it. 25% uh, of our college enrollees actually graduate. 
Um, and you start looking at those kinds of numbers. And quite frankly, I, I sometimes talk about being out of the information economy and into the innovation economy. And an economy is defined by that thing that creates the value upon which most of the economics are based. And if we're looking at change happening so rapidly, it is the people that can introduce the change. Now, we are well ahead of the rest of the world in being able to capitalize on the change, to be able to take that change to market, to be able to institutionalize that change into a viable product. That's innovation, not invention. And so from that perspective, I think we still have several years to run. But I don't like the, the, the leading indicators in terms of education, the number of engineers, the number of scientists that we p are going to be turning out. Uh, i give you a good example of that. I did some robotics judging, and there was this one kid who was absolutely brilliant in robotics. And he was, uh, his team won the competition, and I said, you've got a great career ahead of you. You're going to Carnegie Mellon. Where are you going to go with this? And he says, no, I'm going to be in marketing. It's a lot easier to make money that way. Seriously. You listen to that kind of a story, and you go, We've got a fundamental gap that we've got to fix. Now, Tom Friedman wrote in The World is Flat that we've got an education gap, an aptitude gap, an attitude gap, and all of those things, and I haven't seen a lot bridging that. I haven't seen a lot of things that say that the fundamentals of the United States are improving that are going to allow us to not fall behind in innovation. I do believe that we are still several years, maybe a decade yet, before we really start seeing the ramifications of this. But they are coming because we're not fixing the fundamentals. We're running a tank that's running quickly low on gas and we're not filling it up. That's where I'm saying is if, you don't, if you're not working on a, a science, technology, engineering, and mathematics program, if you don't have an association with a STEM initiative, get involved. Because quite frankly, that's the only way we get the next generation of economy for the United States. I am concerned, especially since BRIC just passed Western Europe and the uh, United States in uh, their total economic capabilities. So uh, they're coming up fast. And by the way, the only thing that's going to slow them down is we did it on cheap energy. We did it on plentiful energy. We did it on cheap resources and plentiful resources. Those aren't available that much anymore. That will slow things down. Oh, I didn't know they passed the U.S. and Western Europe. I just heard that on the radio as I was uh, coming here. Uh, it is basically the economies and the buying power of the, of the financials generated in those economies. Now, it's not the combination of Western Europe and the United States. It's, it's surpassed Western Europe. It's surpassed the United States, the European Union. Sir. Uh, to follow up on innovation, uh, we're spending a lot of R&D dollars with the universities, but yet I'm not so sure we're getting that return into the market. So are the corporations only doing innovation or the universities or is it a combination? It's a combination of government as well as universities as well as business. Uh, I talk to a lot of government clients and they're asking me what's the next mission of government. It's not necessarily roads, it's not necessarily laws, it's, it's innovation and being able to work with businesses and universities to generate that. Now we have a big university program at HP. 
uh, I can I can brag about that because I came from EDS where we didn't have much of one at all. But they basically are seeing that there's a tremendous amount of innovation, and it is how do we direct that? How do we then capitalize on that? How do we create a market outlet for that? So that is the combination there. But the government, in terms of spurring it with tax advantages, with policy, and all of those kinds of, of incentives, that has to be there too. Otherwise, it's it's not going to work. So to me, it's it's a three-cornered stool that has to be there. Sir. Attendant to the thought process that the world is flat, and we've got the science and technology from around the world surpassing the United States. The United States still has something that's very attractive to the rest of the world. Otherwise, they wouldn't be banging down our borders. So do you not think that perhaps that the United States could grow its strength by reaching out to the rest of the world and opening conduits to the intelligence that's out there and not stopping that intelligence and actually importing people and the intelligence here. If we're not going to educate, uh, you know, little Johnny McAllister, we're going to get it from little Hu Chen. 72% of the... Uh of the skilled workers in Silicon Valley at the height of the dot-com boom were non-U.S. nationals. And after 9-11, they weren't welcome. They also didn't need to come here to work. Uh, the dot-com boom actually spurred the growth of fiber in the ground and under the ocean, and that connected the world, and it basically created the paradigm of, of uh, not having to work where you live, but you could live where you work. So if you start looking at it, are we going to be able to take the, uh, the Indian citizen who's very proud of his heritage and he can work in the United States without being in the United States and he can do that. And I know you guys have all had the, hello, my name is Mr. Bill on the helpline and it doesn't work all that way. But if you start really getting into the real knowledge players, they don't have to live in the United States. They don't have to pay taxes here. Most of the people that go to our graduate schools that are foreign nationals go home. They don't stay here. And so if you start looking at that paradigm, we are paradigm lost because of the, the changes in the State Department on granting visas and, and the fear and, and, and terror that was created in 9-11. In, uh, in Quite frankly, I don't, think we've, I don't think most people understand the impact of 9-11. 9-11 was, was a terror campaign, but it was also an economic campaign. And it created policy that basically has been under... Uh, wearing away at the very basis of what the United States uh, was in terms of uh, foreign nationals coming in, attracting the best talent, keeping it, putting it to work here in the States, and then keeping on growing it. That's not happening now. If we have to want to get back to that, we have to do a lot of policy changes that have to get there, and that's not happening. Sir? trend of what I call medical tourism and educational yeah. tourism. Uh, I now get my medical work done overseas every year, and we're starting to send our children overseas for education because the cost of those in this country is not does not add up to the value that we're getting here. Where do you see that trend going? Increasing. Again, we have a lot of people who want to create an Americum, that is to say a, a, a unit of economic value the same size as America, but they don't want to have the same cost structure that we have, and they don't want, and they, and they quite frankly won't do that. Uh, their value is, uh, it has been inexpensive. Their value now is high quality at a lower price. And that's hard to beat, especially when 
you have, again, a, a gap in the United States, and, and I won't even get into the politics of, of uh, changing the, the fundamentals of the United States such that we don't have confidence in growing businesses in the United States. I mean, the, the worst thing you can do is to create an uncertain play field, and people will take their money elsewhere for investment or for medical or for anything else. So stability is what attracts capital that attracts the business, that attracts the economy. And we have to get back to a stable basis, and we don't have that. I see it's going to increase, and I see it's increasing because they keep their costs down. Then they are now creating more and more high expertise and quality. It's just going to continue. And, yeah, it is an interesting thing because that uh, $60,000 hip replacement is about uh, $8,000 and uh, no lawsuits. That's another factor. Any lawyers here? I'll bet. Several. I'm the equal opportunity insulter. So thank you very much for your questions. Follow on and your time. I appreciate it today. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.